Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Good morning. I see quite a few jerseys out there. I uh, tried to put my old football, high school football jersey on and things didn't go very well. (laughs) So (laughs) I have a baseball jersey on this morning. Well, it's uh, great to see everyone. Uh, Thank you, Will and Joe, for sharing with us. Uh, Exciting things are going on on campuses all over the country because of Chi Alpha. And uh, just uh, those are some very well-spent missions dollars. Amen? And as Janet said, uh, right after, as soon as service is over, uh, we're hopping uh, in Brian Riccardi's truck, pulling this 16-foot trailer full of uh, brand new cabinets that we're going to be installing in the new boys' house in Juarez, Mexico. These young boys that have been rescued out of uh, sexual trafficking uh, in, in Juarez, and I tell you, some of their stories, uh, all of their stories, will just uh, break your heart. But the, as Will said, the great thing is now there's hope. Now they have hope. And uh, uh, the sad thing is the world has become so perverse that young boys are being uh, brought into trafficking at a higher rate than, than young girls even. And uh, right now, Jane Christensen, we have more boys uh, uh, then we have girls. You know, there's the girls' house and there's the boys' house. We have more boys coming in than girls. And uh, this is such a, an important and vital ministry. And so we'll be doing the cabinets. We're going to be doing some flooring. We're going to be doing some tile work. We've got, she's got kind of a long laundry, li- laundry list of things for us to get done in the four days that we're going to be there. Now, we have a budget of a, about $3,000 probably in materials and travel expense. Uh, we received an offering last Sunday, and we uh, received a little over $1,200, uh, which puts us uh, not quite halfway there. So at the end of this service, uh, for those of you that would uh, maybe weren't here or would, or would like to give, we're going to receive uh, one final uh, offering towards that missions project. Is that okay? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, this morning I want to talk to you about a subject that absolutely applies to all of us, which is living by faith. And my subtitle is yielding to a greater vantage point. And, and so we all have to learn to live by faith. It doesn't come naturally to us. And in learning to live by faith, it also requires us to learn to yield to a superior vantage point. And that's what we're going to talk about for a little while this morning. I want to begin by using an illustration I've used before, but it just lends itself to this topic. It doesn't apply to everyone here, but it applies to most of us. And the topic is how to keep the shampoo out of your eyes. I have a little trouble in that area too. I said it applies to most everyone. It uh, doesn't apply to everyone because not everyone has hair that has to be shampooed. Now, I still do, but uh, the evidence that I find in the sink after I'm washed my hair every morning tells me that in a few years, I probably won't need shampoo, just maybe a polishing cloth will probably do the trick. And so you know about that, don't you, Will? Yeah, you and I. <laughs> so... 
I'm speaking from experience. I only have my own stories that I can share from life experience. And I'm speaking from this experience from when I was a kid, a little kid, and my mom was still basically in charge of keeping me clean. How many of you guys remember when your mom was pretty much in charge of, of keeping you clean? Because as all of you mothers know, if it were just left up to young boys, there would never be a good enough reason to stop and take a bath, Right? The world is just way too full of things to explore and discover and play with uh, than to waste valuable time taking baths. So as young boys, I, I, I think our thought process is probably, well, you know, what's the purpose, really? I mean, by this time tomorrow, I'll just be dirty again. So it's just, you know, it seems like a waste of time. But because of this universal uh, male frame of mind, pretty much all mothers are responsible to keep young boys clean, up until the age that a boy decides that it's a good idea to be clean. And that's usually somewhere between like uh, maybe 11 to 14, something like that. This, this new concept of cleanliness usually coincides directly with the revelation that, you know, girls aren't such a bad thing after all. It, it, it is connected somehow in there, I think. But up until that age, the evening bath is just kind of this necessary evil dreaded by both mom and son. And what makes this event particularly unpleasant, at least in my case, was the pain of getting shampoo in your eyes. Now back then, I think all of the shampoo manufacturers put like some sulfuric acid or something in <laughs> shampoo just to teach us boys a lesson, most likely. And the lesson was... You ought to trust and obey what your mom's telling you. Keep your head up and, and, and don't be looking down. But we'd always look down. And then there would come the water and the shampoo and the sulfuric acid in your eyes and you'd start screaming and this went on every night, you know. And now they have finally taken all of that, uh, you know, really caustic stuff out of shampoo because everything's a lot safer these days, right? Everything is so safe. That's why all the toys are so boring today because they've gotten so safe. You know, when I was a kid, how many of you will remember this, uh, the mark of a truly great toy was that it had the potential to do one of two things, kill you or burn the house down. That was the mark of a great toy. You know, toys weren't safe. All the good baby toys, they all had plenty of removable parts that could fit in your mouth. There was crazy toys. When I was in junior high, the big craze were these, I don't even know what you called them, but who remembers those two glass balls on a string? And, and sometimes you could get them so fast, apparently they would explode and just shards of glass would go flying. That was a great toy. But my all-time favorite toy, and I've shared, I think I've shared this, my personal all-time favorite toy was Creepy Crawlers. Man, when I was nine years old for Christmas, I wanted every kid on our block, everybody wanted a set of creepy crawlers. Who had creepy crawlers? Man, quite a few of us. And I mean, what a great toy. Creepy crawlers was basically these steel molds, you see them there, and then this goop, who knows what that was. And, you know, that came in different colors. Some of the goop glowed in the dark. It was probably radioactive. We don't know. <laughs> But then you had that hot plate. You see that hot plate right in the middle of the packaging? You could cook eggs in that thing. It got up to 400 degrees. 
And so you knew every kid on our block that got these for Christmas because that week that we're on vacation between Christmas and New Year's, we all had burn marks up and down our arms on our hands. You know, it looked like we'd been playing catch with a hot curling iron. And then, oh, you got creepy crawlers. Oh, yeah, man. It's, I mean, it was a creepy crawlers eventually. They haven't made them for years. They were put on a report as one of the 10 most dangerous toys ever released which is definitive proof that Creepy Crawlers was indeed one of the greatest toys ever invented. This past week, when I was getting this sermon together, I said, I, I, man, I got the itch to make Creepy Crawlers with our grandkids, but you know, I haven't had one in years, so I went on eBay and I bought one. But I tell you, they're not giving these things away. These things are like gold, man. Some of them, some people, they were 12 bucks new. You could buy the whole kit. This is back in 1968. I think it was $12. There were places, some of these on eBay were 200 bucks and didn't even have all the bowls. I found a deal for 50. I'm just going to, can we talk here for a minute? I found this deal for 50 bucks that had all the creepy crawler molds, which our grandsons will like, but it also had the fun flower molds that, that Abigail, our granddaughter, is going to love. And so now I'm just waiting on the goop to arrive, and then, baby, we're in business. This is going to be fun. But anyway... Getting back to the shampoo, we always got our eyes burned for lack of trust. Psalms 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Every believer, we all have to learn how to trust and follow God. As I said, it's not something that we master the day that we get saved. It's not something that just comes overnight. It takes time to learn to follow God. And a lot of times we learn lessons the hard way. Any of you learn any lessons the hard way in life? We're, we're all part of that club, right? It's kind of like flying an airplane. Watching a pilot fly a plane, it looks fairly easy. But the truth is that it takes hundreds of hours of training and experience to get to where you're not going to crash and burn or you're not going to make some uh, illogical decisions or unnecessary risks. I had a very, very good friend who was a pilot for many years, and I remember he told me one time, it's always stuck in my head, because uh, I was wanting to get a pilot's license, and then I figured out I couldn't fit in the trainer plane that you learned to fly in. And so my knees were jammed into the, into the dash and it didn't work out. But anyway, he said this. He said, there's an old saying among pilots, and the saying is this. There are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. So you think about it and then it'll hit you in a little bit. But the same thing is true of following God. It takes time for us to learn to really do it right. And it's really something we have to be trained in. If we are not trained, usually we are not easily led. If you're taking notes, jot that down. You know, what's the first thing they do in the military? They train people how to be led. And following God can be very frustrating when we really don't understand how to be led. The reason that it's important that we understand how to be led of God is so that we can enjoy all of the things that he has for us in our life. He has a very specific plan for each of our lives. And here's a main, I'm going to give you the main point of my sermon right up front here, although I'd really appreciate it if you stick around and hear the rest. Here's the main point. You won't follow someone if you don't trust them. 
You'll never follow someone that you don't fully trust. We have to trust in God if we're going to be led. Amen? And that's what this scripture is saying. It's saying trust in the Lord and do good. It means it's very imperative that we have to trust God's perspective over our own. And how many of you know our perspective with our human eyes, our human ears, we live in a, with a very, very limited perspective in life. But the thing is, we're so tempted to follow our own perspective most of the time and trust our own perspective, even though it's like we've got blinders on and we, we see very little of what's around the corner. Trust means that you're going to put your confidence in God. You're going to believe what he says, even when it contradicts your own ideas or opinions. That's what trust is, right? But sometimes people lose the ability to, to fully trust because maybe someone has hurt them or someone's betrayed them in some way. Well, here's truth number one today. People are always going to hurt you or let you down at some point. Always. And why is that true? It's true because we are all just imperfect people, right? There are no perfect ones among us. Only one has ever existed. The key for us is to learn to let go of the things that hurt us. Learn to let go of your hurts. Because here's another shocker. If you don't learn to let go of your hurts, your hurts just keep hurting you. You know, Janet and I, we did our best to instill this belief into our kids as well. If something hurts you, hey, just let it go. But we all know that's easier said than done, right? Especially when you're a kid. Because when you're a kid and something hurts you, man, you just want to sit around and pout about it, right? Man, aren't you glad adults don't pout? That's another sermon. But when I was a kid and I'd do something goofy and I'd get in trouble, you know, I'd be sitting around pouting and feeling sorry for myself. But usually before I, you know, did something crazy, I would give the whole situation some very careful thought. And, and then once I had calmed down, I would usually arrive at a very uh, mature decision, which was, well, I should just run away. That would teach them. Anybody have that one? I'll show them. I'm just going to run away. Brent came to this conclusion when he was about four or five. He decided, he, he, but instead of just getting up and running away as how you're actually supposed to do it, he announced it to Janet and I, I I'm just going to run away because he was upset about something. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, Janet comes jumping up out of her seat. She grabs him by the hand, takes him back into his bedroom and says, well, it's, you know, this is winter and you're going to need a lot of clothes to keep you warm because it's cold out there. And she opens up his little suitcase and she just starts packing his clothes and he's just standing there and I'm kind of listening to see what's going on in just a few minutes. Uh, you know, I hear her talking, but she leads him uh, down the hall and little Brent's got his little suitcase full of stuff and, and she's walking him to the front door and she's saying, now remember, it's cold, it gets dark early, so you've really got to find a place where you're going to be safe tonight when it gets dark. And so then I chimed in, yeah, because that's when the monsters come out. I just thought, I thought that would help. You know, I threw that in for free and so anyway, she opens up the front door. She literally kind of pushes him out the front door and she closes it. And then we just stand there for, it was probably, 
I don't know, 15 seconds. It seemed like five minutes. But, and then we hear this. And we open up the door. And what do you know? He said, I've decided I'm not going to run away. I'm, I'm going to stay here. And then we acted all relieved and happy, you know. So, oh, thank you for staying with us. So, yeah. <laughs> so we can spend tens of thousands of dollars on you over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. <laughs> thank you for that. No, we were, we were thankful. But that was the last time, that was the last time Brent ever threatened to run away. And here's the thing about threats. You know, we all, you know, when we've gotten upset with, with, people or situations, sometimes we make threats. And the thing is, threats are nothing more than weapons that we try to use. But if someone has any sense at all, once they realize a weapon is totally ineffective, they'll quit using it, right? Unfortunately, not everyone has a lot of sense. In our own lives, there have been times where we probably didn't have a lot of sense. And we keep trying to use weapons that are completely ineffective. I heard, I don't know if this is, I think this is right, uh, I heard there's a, another new Godzilla movie coming out this summer. And, and of course, I always say you can't have enough Godzilla movies. You know, they're all so different. <laughs> but here's the thing that I always find just, it almost makes me laugh. Whenever I see a Godzilla movie, they're all, they all have this same thread or this same scene that you're going to see at one point in the movie. And that is, you know, here you got this, you know, 80-foot lizard monster walking down, you know, like a street that looks like New York City, and he's knocking over buildings, and he's stepping on buses and crushing cars, and everybody's screaming and running, except one guy, there'll always be one guy in the middle of the street, and he's standing there with a pistol, and he's <laughs> and he just keeps shooting and Godzilla keeps coming and pretty soon it's like, yeah, you know, and then he gets crushed. I, I don't understand that, but I find it amusing because he just can't figure out this weapon is completely ineffective. I should just stop using it, right? It doesn't pay to use an ineffective weapon, but another common weapon that we love to use is this pouting thing. Pouting is a weapon. And one of the main reasons that people become chronic powders is because at some point earlier on in life, they experienced a lot of success with it. I tell you, mom and dads, it doesn't pay to chase after a powder or even adults in, in your uh, in adult relationship. You've got somebody that says they're a friend, but every time things don't go their way, they just start pouting. It doesn't, the worst thing you can do is chase after a powder. God does not honor powders. I just threw that in for free this morning. But, like I say, these uh, chronic powders, they grow up to be adult powders. And, and adult chronic powders have a tendency to bounce from church to church if they happen to be church-going people. And the reason is usually somewhere down the line, something happened to them that they felt caused them to lose the ability to really trust. And once you lose the ability to trust, you become completely unfruitful in the kingdom of God. Because the whole premise of our Christian journey is all based on the ability to trust. So we need to understand that we can always trust God because He always has our best interest at heart. Amen? Psalm 37.4 says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Here's what that's saying. It's saying that God cares about you even more than you care for yourself. That's why we can always trust Him. 
He's not up there just, you know, bossing us around, but he leads us into certain things because he really does care for us. And he leads us into certain things because he is omniscient. He knows everything. We don't. Sometimes we think we know everything, but in reality, I mean, we usually, we don't know nothing other than how to construct a good double negative. So those of you in grammar, you got that, didn't you, David? Thank you. You, you and I, man, we're... We have to learn to trust God because He wants us to have the desires of our hearts. Do you believe that this morning? God wants you to have the desires of your heart, but it's up to you to make those desires line up with God's will. We have to do that. He doesn't do that. We have to learn to trust Him in order to receive those desires of our heart. Now, here's something that is very critical about real trust. If you truly trust someone, it means you are acknowledging that they have a superior vantage point. In other words, you, you have faith that they can see things that you can't see, things that you're blind to. And in Christianity, in our journey with Christ, we need a blind faith. There are very few people on planet Earth who display a greater faith than blind people. I mean, they'll let a trained dog lead them across a very busy street without fear of getting run over because they know that this dog has a superior vantage point than they do. He can see what's coming down the road. They can't. Last month when we went snow skiing, uh, Jeff will back me up on this, we saw a lot of blind people skiing down this mountainside. Nobody had a hand on them. There would be a, a person behind them telling them, go right, go left. Very calm, go right, go left. And these blind people would just do it, and they got down the hill. I never saw one blind person skiing that even fell down. They were putting, they had a lot of faith in someone that they knew had a, a superior vantage point, right? So that's what trust is. Trust is acknowledging that someone else can see things that we can't see. God sees everything before we do, right? That's why it's imperative that we trust Him. Trusting Him means we're going to take His word for it. For example, when God tells us in His word, this is just one example, not to be unequally yoked. That means uh, referring to a, a believer who decides they're going to marry an unbeliever. Why does he tell us that? Because he can see what's coming down the road. I wish I had a dollar for every young woman who allowed herself to fall in love with a non-believer with this grand idea that, well, once we're married, I'll be able to steer him to the Lord. And I, I, that, that kind of a, uh, idea is, is part of the reason why the divorce rate is almost as high in the church as it is in the world. I mean, we have to learn to take God at face value. It's not a deep mystery. When God tells us not to do this or not to do that, it's not because He doesn't want us to have any fun in life. It's because He sees things from a superior vantage point and He can see the truth that you and I cannot see. And He's just trying to keep us out of a mess. But sometimes we've all been hard-headed, right? And we just insist on doing things our way, uh, learning things the hard way. But 
A lot of times we go through these things, and, and when it's all said and done, we end up saying, boy, you know, God, you were right. I sure wish I would have listened to you. Who's been there before? You don't have, well, some of you actually raised your hand. It was kind of a, I raised my hand because I've been there before in life. You know, someone said, experience is the best teacher. You ever heard that one? And I say, well, that's true, especially if it's somebody else's experience. Man, be smart enough to learn from the mistakes of others, right? Here's another truth. When you don't have the right vantage point, you can easily be deceived. This is a huge problem in life. Because we don't have the superior vantage point, man, we can so easily be deceived. Yeah, I love old Western movies, and one of my favorites is Lonesome Dove, that miniseries. We got any Lonesome Dove fans here? I love Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones in that movie. Great story of the Old West. But uh, there was this one scene in this movie where Tommy Lee Jones' character, one of his young cowboys is being beat up. Actually, he's being whipped by this big bully who's on on a horse, and he's whipping this kid. Tommy Lee Jones sees this. He goes into a rage, and he takes his horse, and he rams it right into this big bully's horse, knocking the guy on the ground, and then he just commences to, you know, knock the stuffing out of this guy. It's a great scene. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, a, that, was a, that was a pretty incredible stunt because uh, what I came to learn is horses do not like to even touch or bump into each other as a rule, let alone run full blast into one. But there was this documentary I saw years later called The Making of Lonesome Dove, and it showed how this stunt was done. It was pretty simple. There was a cameraman in between the two horses, and so Tommy Lee Jones' horse comes charging at the bully's horse, and right as it gets there, you don't see it because the camera whirls around, and Tommy Lee Jones, his horse stops. The other guy, the bully's on what is called a fall-down horse. It's a horse that's trained to you pull on the reins and it just falls over. And so that's what happens. And as you saw the whole thing uh, from this other perspective, you thought, man, that was a pretty easy stunt. But in the movie, we were deceived. We thought something happened that hadn't really happened. And so the point is, from the perspective of this other camera, you could see the whole thing. But from what we were seeing, it looked like something totally different. When you don't have the right vantage point, you can easily be fooled. And that's why some of the, some of the seemingly nicest, most caring people in the world can sometimes be the biggest con artists around. And that's why they're so successful. And likewise, sometimes some of the best people with great character, maybe to you they don't for some reason seem all that friendly when you first meet them, but really they're just rock-solid people that you could trust your life to. We have to learn how to judge from the right vantage point. And that's why God has given us His Word so that we can see things the way He sees things. Now, I, this morning, I want to share an illustration from uh, the the book of Luke, the fifth chapter, that many of you are very familiar with. It's the story of Peter accepting the Lord's vantage point over his own and making a choice to honor the Lord. Luke 5, 1 through 10. It says this, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. You will be fishers of men. Now, here's the point in that story. Peter was a professional fisherman, right? He had grown up uh, as a fisherman. Probably his dad was a fisherman. His grandfather was probably a fisherman. That's kind of how it shook down in those days. And he made a living. He made his living with those fishing nets. He knew all about the art of fishing. And there he is out there fishing on the Sea of Galilee. I've got a, that was a, a picture from a fishing boat out on the Sea of Galilee uh, next year about this time when we do our first uh, CT Holy Land trip. We'll most likely be on one of those boats out on the Sea of Galilee. And the reason I put that picture up there, you see that little hill to, uh, to my right? That kind of sloping down. That is actually the hill where the uh, the spirit, the evil spirits, came into that herd of hogs, and they all went running down that hill into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. That was it. And you'll get to see stuff like that. But anyway, out there on the Sea of Galilee, Simon and and his guys, they've been fishing all night, and now along comes Jesus of Nazareth who has probably never fished a day in his life. He grew up in in Nazareth. He uh, completely landlocked. He really didn't get out of there until he began his three-year ministry, and the Bible never says a word about them having time to stop and go fishing. So he'd probably never fished a day in his life, but he is the Son of God, isn't he? And he has a vantage point that none of us have. So now when Peter said, Master, we've worked all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let the net down. That's what he said, right? Here's what he's actually saying. He says, now listen, I don't believe we're going to catch any fish because I know about fishing and you don't. You really don't know what you're talking about. However, out of obedience to you, I'm going to throw out my net. That's what he's saying. See, Jesus had just finished this teaching to this large crowd of people. Peter probably just didn't want to contradict Jesus in front of these people. I mean, he was basically, he's just being nice to the preacher here. That's kind of what he's doing. So he, you know, he goes out there, not really wanting to, and lo and behold, they catch so many fish, it almost sinks the boat. He is blown away. But here's the part that, that we all, we have to really see and we have to understand this. Peter's goal from the beginning was to catch fish, wasn't it? That's why he was out there all night long. That was his goal. That was his heart's desire. And Jesus wanted him to have his heart's desire. But what Jesus told Peter to do was very, very contrary to Peter's own inclination. 
what Jesus was asking him to do, Peter was thinking, this has about as much chance as nothing. That's what he's thinking. What we have to realize that God, he always wants us to have the desires of our hearts. He wants to fulfill the deepest desires that we have. However, first, we have to be completely obedient or it's not going to happen. That's why Psalms 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We have to remember that it begins by completely trusting him and allowing God to lead us. Let God lead you. It's going to save you a ton of messes in your life. A lot of heartache and grief and misery. If you'll just let God lead you. Now here's how he does it. I'm winding down here. God always leads us in steps. You with me? He leads us in steps. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 16.9 says, a, man, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A single step is rarely the destination point, right? A step, a single step is just one step forward. And sometimes we just get over anxious and we get, uh, you know, we don't want to wait. We don't want to go through what it's going to take to really get to the, the, the proper destination. And we want, to, we want to move quicker than God wants us to move. God is just asking us to take a step, right? So people, a lot of times, we're always looking for a shortcut. But the truth is, if we don't follow the Lord's leading and you, and you try to take a shortcut, you're always going to be much, much longer reaching the proper destination. You know, I, again, in my life, uh, our journey has been a journey of steps. You know, musically, uh, at a young age, I began playing drums, and me and a buddy of mine, his name was Mitch Sanders. This was up in Illinois, and I'm not there yet, but that's okay. You can leave that up there. Uh, we had a two-man band. He was on guitar, and I was on drums, and we got a couple little gigs at some junior high uh, places. Anyway, we, had, we thought we were something, but really, we were terrible, of course. But uh, the playing drums kind of eventually led to playing drums and singing at the same time. That was a weird thing. And, uh, but our first really what you, uh, decent band that I was ever a part of, that was it right there. And uh, that was at Peoria First Assembly. And uh, it, it's proof that I was thin at one time. You see, J Janet kind of looks the same. She's in the middle, but I'm over there on the, uh, on the far corner. And my buddy up at the very top, Mike, that's who's here every year at Christmas time playing bass with us. Doesn't he look like a kid right there? And he's three years older than me. But anyway, from there, I, I, I started playing some keyboards and, and singing, and, and that was a, a this whole uh, development in music was, was steps. And as far as preaching ministry, Janet and I, we began by teaching junior high Sunday school. And they had to ask us about a half a dozen times because we kept turning them down saying, well, no, we're just... Uh, kids ourselves, we can't be teaching, you know, junior junior high kids, and we're just not we're not uh, worthy kind of thing. And then finally, they kept asking, and we said okay, and we started teaching junior hires, and man, we found out we loved it. And then that 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 proceeded into high school ministry, and and for 13 years we were youth pastors, and from there I came here and became an associate pastor, and then finally, you know, senior pastor. It, it's a it's a progression of steps. Because here's truth number two. 
you will never get from the starting point to your final destination in one big leap unless you don't plan on going very far. Feel free to jot that down. I don't find anywhere in the Bible where, where we, we are instructed to take leaps of faith. I read about leaps of joy. I don't read about leaps of faith. We take steps of faith. It seems like any time we try to leap headlong into something, then we usually regret it later. But don't misinterpret what I'm trying to say. I believe in big things in the kingdom of God. God wants to do big things in us. Amen? It's just that I'm telling you, He will usually do those and accomplish those big things in steps in your life. Not in one giant leap. And so I'm going to kind of close out today with these three thoughts. And if you don't remember anything else, remember these. Jot them down if you have to. The three steps of how God leads us. It starts with inspiration. You'll, God will inspire you with an idea to do something. You get this idea, you'll get motivated and excited about doing something in the kingdom of God. That's inspiration. That will be followed up by preparation. In everything that God leads you to do, first He inspires you, but then it's up to you to prepare. That part's up to you. To position yourself to do what it is that God's allow, that He's showing you. And so, in our case, we started out teaching junior high school. Uh, but we, somewhere along the, the way, you know, I, I had this thought that, you know, someday, somewhere, there might be a church so desperate for a senior pastor, they might consider me. And so we began a whole new set of steps. Uh, God preparing us started the necessary schooling to get credentialed. And this took several years. But remember this, remember this about preparation. Sometimes it might seem a little boring, but I'm telling you, it is never time wasted. You'll never regret time you spend in preparation. There's an old saying that says, most great achievements are 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. That's the preparation part, right? And then third comes the administration. After you have been inspired, after you've done your homework and you allowed God to take you in steps toward this, uh, this final step, it's time for the administration. And that means the carrying out of the plan. And that's when God really begins to do some incredible things in your life, things that you'd never dreamt possible. You know, we see these three steps so evident in the life of Joseph. First was the inspiration. God gave him some dreams. Then came the preparation, which was pretty unusual. He got sold as a slave by his brothers. He had to learn Egyptian culture. Somewhere along the way, he learned a lot about agriculture and learned about the storing of agricultural products because then came the administration and ultimately he is appointed second in command over all of Egypt and he controlled the entire food supply to that nation and many others during the Great Famine. Here's the final point to remember this morning. I close with this. As you follow God, remember to keep your head up and look to Him to guide your steps. Follow His lead. Don't take your eyes off the one who is leading you. Listen to His direction. Amen? Or else here's what happens. It's like when you're a kid getting your head shampooed. 
We're always told what to do, but somehow we think we know better. And your head's all lathered up with the shampoo, and you put your head down, and then comes the water and the sulfuric acid and all that stuff that goes into your eyes. So often our reaction is to duck our head down instead of keeping our head lifted up. But every time we take our eyes off, we always end up getting burned. As we follow God, it's important that we keep our heads looking up, allowing Him to guide and direct us. Because when we look down and we take our eyes off of Him, we get burned every time, don't we? Each of us has to learn to completely trust God completely in every situation because He has got this perspective that we're never going to have. He sees everything before it ever happens. And that's why we can always completely and fully trust in Him. Amen. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.